The third chapter of the second epilogue begins with Tolstoy having you envision a locomotive that is moving. And remember, this was written in the 1860s or so. So imagine that the locomotive was the height of industrial and scientific technology at the time. Tolstoy notes that there's a person who asks, what moves the locomotive? And it's important to remember that the locomotive is a symbol for great efforts or movements of people. Tolstoy posits that a peasant in his simplicity might say, a devil moves the locomotive. Again, a symbol for masses of humanity flooding to one idea or physical movement or another, such as a migration or answering a call to war. Another observant person looking at the locomotive might say, I think it's the wheel that I see turning that moves the train. They see something that seems to be the cause of the movement, and they provide their best educated guess in answer to the question. And another person may respond that they think it's the smoke, which is the byproduct of what the engine produces. But to a person unfamiliar with train mechanics, especially seeing it for the first time, if you see smoke, you might think that the smoke, in fact, moves the locomotive. Tolstoy goes back to the simple peasant. He says, in his mind, there is a complete and unrefutable explanation. For him, it's easy to say that some divine or some transcendent force is the cause of everything. He notes that the average man who attributes the cause of the train moving to the wheels will ultimately recognize the error of his ways and move on to something else. He's inevitably going to think, well, what makes the wheels move? And his mind will move on to what he could see the cause of that is. He will reach the conclusion that there is the pressure of steam in the boiler that causes the wheels to move. The other person who is likely seeing a locomotive for the first or one of the first times he has seen such a machine move will attach the reason for movement to something that really stands out. And smoke shooting out of a furnace from a train will definitely serve that purpose. Tolstoy is pointing out how easy it is for historians to mistake a byproduct for the cause. Tolstoy is trying to make the point that when you see a train move, it takes a great deal of power to make it so. It's too bad, in his opinion, that that source of power is not easily observable or is neglected. He feels that this reasoning applies to the movements of peoples, especially at times of war. Namely, that there were causes for such movements that were just as strong and profound and tangible as the march off to war, even if they're less visible. In simple terms, there is always a force commensurate with the movement observed. Tolstoy is arguing that historians, with their biases and subjective analysis, have a tendency to ignore true causes of events or movements. Such academics have a tendency to go off describing reasons that are not of sufficient power to have led to the train to leave the station and pick up a lot of speed. 
They may come up with something plausible, but they fail in getting at truth. Tolstoy notes how popular it was to attribute so many historical events to the ideas of one man, such as a Napoleon or a Caesar, as he has argued in the first two chapters of this epilogue. But he finds individual motivations and personages to be a completely insignificant force to the major historical events and movements of humanity. Tolstoy wants to struggle with understanding this majestic force that truly moves people and to give it its proper due. He thinks the only way to do that is something of an impossibility practically, namely to have a completely unified approach that takes into consideration all of history, which us mere mortals would have a very tough time compiling. So the effect is that these great movements are impossibly hard to pin down a reason or cause for. Tolstoy does at least ask the question, do these great men of history, do they have some type of X factor, whereby they could be considered in the language of the day, great men of will who move the world? Even though it's hard to pin down and define, Tolstoy does acknowledge a force that works to compel men to do something and wants to take on that concept and call that ability power. Tolstoy in this analysis is making the point that the words we have to describe all these challenging concepts are limited. Words ultimately are just somewhat arbitrary symbols for something else. Power is just five letters that makes a funny sound when you say it. But the course of history and linguistics has given it the meaning that popped into your mind when Tolstoy described it, and I gave it a bit of context. The words we come up with at least give us some understanding of an age, a concept, a feeling, an emotion, even though most are bound to be a bit underwhelming especially when trying to describe something like a religious or awe-inspiring experience. Still, the conception of power is something of an explanation for historical events. Tolstoy then compares the science of trying to understand history to the types of money that are in circulation. Specifically, there is paper money, and then there is metal or coin money. He sees metal as having intrinsic value and being worth its weight. Well, paper money is just based on faith and belief in the paper having the value that it purports to have. He says that most historians are like paper money, not too valuable. This is especially so with respect to biographers of individuals and specific nations. You have to realize that such analysis from such academics, just like paper money, is artificial. The value exists as long as people believe it exists, but most of it is just cheap and replaceable. Tolstoy argues that people should not ignore whether there is value behind the paper. Tolstoy is saying that everybody with a voice, journalists, historians, commentators, the more of them who get into the mix and speak, the lower the value of an individual voice becomes. 
And is this not true in the age of the internet where anybody can get on, even someone like myself, and post their thoughts on the issues of the day without even getting it by an editor? Many of the voices will be interesting, artsy, loud, but ultimately, without a filter, each idea becomes somewhat devalued. Tolstoy is concluding that only in scarcity or something going through a filtering or editing process do ideas become more like coins that hold their weight. Tolstoy argues that people want gold, gold being a symbol for actual comprehension on a matter of import. Tolstoy argues that another of the type of historians he referenced in the preceding chapter, the universalist or generalist historian, as well as the historians on culture, give the public something better but not quite gold. Gold would be the historian or the wise man, the sage that's able to answer the question, what is the nature of power? He finds that nobody he's analyzed so far has been able to provide this value. The generalist historian, in his opinion, gives contrary answers in his analysis of the causes for historical events. And the historians of arts and culture seem always to be going off on tangents and never answering that critical question. They avoid it and provide people with a type of shiny fool's gold. And this is where the chapter ends, as Tolstoy will attempt to get further into in later chapters, how to go for the gold. He marches on to elucidate what is power and how it moves men. He's trying to analyze how history has been written through the perception of power and propose a more accurate way to record events. And spoiler alert, his writing of War and Peace and these great characters who have lived so vividly throughout the last 200 plus years exemplifying the struggle of humanity is how the great writer tried to give the world gold he tried to get to the essence of the nature of power by creating some of the great characters and struggles. Someone could give you a history lesson on what Napoleon did, Emperor Alexander, or General Kutuzov. They could review their correspondences and provide analysis of their motivations and how troops followed their directives. But War and Peace gave you insight into the lives of the masses, the individual, as well as collective suffering amidst the strife. The average man and his struggles are more symbolic of an age than anything about the life of the most elite. That's a story very difficult to tell because average people don't often have someone to put together a readable and engaging story for themselves. So Tolstoy at least acknowledges why we historically do have as stand-ins people like Caesar, Napoleon, and Alexander as embodiments of an age. Tolstoy depicted those events not just through the leaders, but he created symbols of the regular people who participated in the war and that shaped his society for generations. So this locomotive that Tolstoy began the chapter describing is everyone together. That's what it's a symbol of. It's a major movement, whether it's Napoleon and his soldiers gathering to go east or Emperor Alexander and Kutuzov and the peasants and the soldiers and the allies uniting to get into another locomotive traveling the opposite way, heading towards a grand collision. 
Each one exemplifies the beliefs, passions, opinions, fears of an entire people.